Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown. I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs and the head of inspiration at Scribehound. I am joined once again at the microphone by Chris Horn. Chris, how are you doing? I'm very good, George. Very genuinely, good. I th- genuinely think I'm the best I've been in a long while when it comes to shooting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know why. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this was your. Um, this was your uh, walked up species day, right? Yeah. You heard. You. I think you're aware that it wasn't a walked up species day, aren't well, you? Well, the, the the photographs of you standing in a grouse butt rather gave that away. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I. I was up in. Um, I was up in Durham, actually right next door to where uh, our guest today has uh, spent a lot of his life um, on Monday. But I got a text on Saturday uh, as I was getting my stuff ready to leave on Sunday morning. And he said, yeah, we've got quite a few about it's double guns on Monday. And I basically <laughs> started dancing around the kitchen. <laughs> it, it was going to be a walk around day for the end of the season uh, and turned into something else. Uh, I've never shot november grouse and my god just it was unbelievable uh there was quite a wind conditions were perfect and i drew quite well on the old draw as well which which made it even more enjoyable amazing honestly george like you know we we talk about pheasant shooting a lot we talk about all forms of shooting but i genuinely came away from that having absolutely confirmed in my head that a november grouse is worth at least four times a pheasant (laughs) <laughs> and I'm done on that for good. Well, I wish I was able to confirm or deny your analysis, but having never shot at grouse of any description, um, I'll have to take your word for it. But I don't, I don't dispute it for a second. <laughs> and the other, the other important thing, I got a bit of abuse on a, a group chat that I send a photo on for double guns because on a recent podcast we were talking about double gunning, and I said on pheasants, I'm not really sure it's necessary. But we specifically said wild birds, it does not count. It absolutely is. And Monday it absolutely was, and I loved every second of it. So yes, I just want to put that one straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, um, I don't know if I've told you this. I I haven't had um, anything quite like uh, such a glamorous experience as you have, but um, I'm very excited. I think I have said before that um, uh, a couple of years ago, the council put this new cycle path in through the farm. And as part of that project, they dug a pond. And we've been sort of joking about whether some ducks would turn up. And uh, I was chatting to my brother the other day and he said that um, he'd counted 18 ducks on there the other day. So this weekend, he and I are going to get his his baby is due this weekend. So I said, what better time than to go and see if we can shoot a couple of ducks. So that's my plan for this weekend. And and it's not grouse shooting, but I'm very excited about it. It, Absolutely, because that's basically council funded duck shooting and it doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) I know, it's amazing. (laughs) We're going to see if we can persuade them to dig a couple more ponds. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, anyway, you've mentioned our guests. I think you'd better introduce them, Chris. Absolutely. So our guest today, up until 2020, spent 15 years as head keeper at East Annenheads Estate in up in Durham, uh, employing 15 keepers, managing three different moors over 50, uh, 30,000 acres. My God, that's a lot. Um, he's worked on numerous heather restoration projects. He's been involved in the revolutionary medicated grit that's come in. Um, when he retired, a GWCT survey of the estate counted 429 curlew pairs. So what that tells you is he's very accurate with the rifle. Um, 
he <laughs> Ian Coghill, uh, one of the most knowledgeable men on the Uplands, called him the Grouse Whisperer, and I think that is honestly the best bit of endorsement you can get. I think that might um, be the episode title. <laughs> he is regarded as one of the best gamekeepers ever uh, no word of a lie put down your hedge trimmers and wave your beating flags in the air for none other than steve colmer hi everybody and thanks for having me on steve it's a great pleasure i'm not sure about the the, the grouse whisper but uh no know. no that's the bit out of all of that i'm absolutely sticking by <laughs> thank you <laughs> i feel like I... you should have it on a t-shirt <laughs> I've got quite a few things on a t-shirt, but it's not Grouse Whisperer. <laughs> he, um, we, we were up together earlier on in the year, and I remember talking to Ian at that point, and he'd been round in the car with you on the moor, and yeah. he he genuinely was like, "What? that guy's got talents that I don't think I've seen anyone else have. Yeah, and no, we, we set off one morning with uh, Ian to look at some of uh, everything, really, all the waders and everything else that was on the foul that morning. But I'm a little bit sort of uh, one way. So they're all looking for different species and I'm looking for grouse. <laughs> and I have this way of making grouse to show themselves and and uh, get them to come to you close. And of course, I can never get bored of that. But I think poor old Ian got to the stage where he was like, yeah, Steve, uh, I've got the joke. We know what a grouse is. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of talent, so have you seen Chris shoot grouse, Steve? No. Oh, that's disappointing. I was hoping you were going to tell us that he's rubbish. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> I haven't seen Chris shoot grouse. No, but you, I've listened to you, lads, and I'm. it sounds like it should be Chris Dickweed, the way you carry on. <laughs> I wish, I wish. I, t- I you wouldn't have been. You, I don't think you would have been inviting me back to sort of be on your mop up days, uh, based on my performance on Monday. Uh, I was, yeah, I was borrowing a pair of guns, and it went well. It was just enjoyment, honestly. I've been, uh, I've been invited to shoot in the, the end of the month at the championship at Brooklyn, the Labrador Championship. So uh, Rab, uh, the head keeper, says, oh, "Are you going to come, Steve?" Uh, yep. And I asked, he said, are you sure you're coming? Oh, yeah, I said, but I've got a couple of problems. One is I haven't got any cartridges and I haven't got a gun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to go up there. I don't, can't think the last time I f- shot properly was quite a long time ago. So, but anyhow, I'm going to go and I'm going to stand beside Rab and pretend it was me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that would be good fun. Yeah. And I bet, and, and that's, I can imagine being in the job the whole time if you get invited to shoot on someone else's moor that's a very oh, not doing feeling. it not doing it <laughs> really there's no way i'm not a chance there's no, um i got tricked out maybe seven or eight years ago uh jerry at gunnerside said oh steve i need a you know i need some out on whatever day can you come and yeah, I'll be there, I'll be there. And of course, as I get there, he hands me his 20 ball and says, right, you're shooting for the day. And it felt like I was shooting my favourite dog every drive. I just couldn't <laughs> cope with shooting at grouse. Uh, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's no way. Not a prayer. A bit of a busman's holiday. No, just they're my, they're my bread and butter, aren't they? They were my life. So to shoot one wasn't for me, no. That That is really interesting because... I don't think it's the same, anything like the same, I can imagine. I'm guessing here, if you're a lowland keeper with pheasant and partridge, because they're reared, I just don't think you'd see them in the same way, the effort that you put over making sure the grouse numbers were there. I don't know. I just, when I, I don't shoot, 
right, yeah, I'm going to go to Drumlandry to shoot yeah, on the championship. But that's because my friends are going and I've been asked to go and it's going to be a, just a, a, a real good time to catch up with everybody. Mm. Um, and I've got to make somebody's day by missing it and somebody getting it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to do what you do, Chris, but better. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I just, no, I, you know, once upon a time, I'd travel through the night to go shooting, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't set off now to go anywhere shooting. No, I just, I, but if you said to me, uh, this is, you know, there's something going where I could go and learn something and watch and learn. And that could be anything. If it's a gilly on a river or, or uh, somebody that's, you know, got some new pheasant drives or somewhere I've never been before, you know, is that would be my, my hunger for sure. It was six hours up to Durham on Sunday night, and it was the quickest six-hour drive I've ever had. I was, I was, I literally, I could have flown there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was just really enjoyable. Very good. Right, time for a drink. Indeed. So, um, we like to start things off the right way, Steve. So, I'm going to ask you, what's that you're drinking? I have got a Abbeydale Brewery American IPA. Very nice. So it's quite, it's, it's all, it's nice, but if I had a fault, it's a 4.1. <laughs> and to talk to you lads and build up a bit of courage, it would have been better at 4.6. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in Sheffield and you're, you, you live in Sheffield, don't you? Just yeah, I do live in Sheffield. So yeah, one of the things I miss about Northumberland is the beer. You know, I would probably set off now to go to a pub that had... Allendale Brewery, Pennine Pale. I would probably go now if if my mate said it's ready, Steve. I would go. <laughs> that that was the staple. Ah, oh, that was the go-to beer. Yeah, and then like down in the south of England where we are, I go to every pub. And I've had, where the problem where where the problem is, I have had to start drinking lager, which isn't you know it's better than nothing, but. Yeah, you look over the bar and they'll have something like a Timothy Taylor's on, but they haven't got the widget on it and they just splosh it into the bottom of the yeah. pint. And uh, you know that by morning your bowels are going to be looser than what it came out of. So it's <laughs> it's just it's just not, you know, they need to go to Northumberland and learn how to do beer. That's high praise. Yes. Um, I've never heard Sheffield described as south before. That's enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> It is south to where I was, sorry. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, George, George, what are you on? Well, so I've been hoping to save this for the episode when we talk about the podcast shoot day, because on that day, uh, one of our guests very kindly brought me a bottle of whiskey. Um, but it was so nice, and I've been holding on for it for so long. So this is the last dram out of a bottle of uh, Edrador 10-year-old single malt scotch. And it's absolutely delicious, which is why I've had to have it today rather than waiting another couple of weeks before we record about that uh, about that day. Otherwise, it would have all gone. So one of our very kind guests also gave me a little uh, hip flask of whiskey. Um, is it the same guest? And therefore, is that the whiskey that I have in my hip flask? No, it was a different guest. Ah. I've, got, I've, got a, I've got a hip flask as well from that day. So I'm, that's what I'm saving that for now. 
but okay, I haven't actually okay. tried that one in the hip flask. Because um, that one doesn't have writing on the front, so we'd have to try and work out what it is, and that involves <laughs> ringing you and just trying to describe the <laughs> No, I, I don't know what that is, um, so I'm looking forward to that. But no, this one's... I've never even heard of Edredor before, but it is really nice. Really, really nice. Um, and so a huge thank you to that listener. Have you, always been, have, you, have you always been able to drink whiskey, is it, or is it something you've... Uh, you've got a little bit older you've come into yeah i i first picked it up on a on a fishing trip um with a bunch of my dad's mates we had had we'd finished supper quite a boozy supper on the first night of the trip and one of them said you joining us for whiskey club george and i said oh i'm not really don't really drink spirits not, not really that bothered and they um they said no come on come on have you had it with a drop of water all this stuff and i had <laughs> i mean as a as a first whiskey i had a uh, 10 year old lefroig which is quite a a baptism of fire really but uh i immediately fell in love and uh drink little else these days actually tea and whiskey are the main ones <laughs> uh so that yes it's a very very nice dram and i'm enjoying it a lot i'm trying to eke it out for the whole episode chris what have you got so i actually have a repeat drink which i don't do ever really but this one deserves it tim madams one of our previous guests uh created a drink called elderberry porth which is essentially a port but made out of elderberries um it was selling really really well it was it must have been two years ago this time of year it was in the run-up to christmas and uh he got a call from the marketing board or the sort of association for port uh from one of their lawyers (laughs) and was like you can't call it that and he was like, what do you mean? It's in the run up to Christmas. It's doing really well. Um, and the only reason he'd done that is because he tried to trademark the name. Anyway, ah. during this during this Zoom call with this lawyer, he was like, well, look, what do, you, what do you want me to call it? And she was like, I don't care what you call it as long as you call it something else. And so he called it Elderberry Something Else. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's very Tim. It's it so Tim. He's a bad man. He once did me over in the pub one night. He went, if you ever get if you ever get him on his own, just say, uh, "Tim, can you tell me about the time you did one on Steve?" So he he said, "I was he was on this day on Monday, right?" And he said to me, "Ask Steve about the time." <laughs> do, do you want to do you want to hear the story? Yeah, is it, it, yes, go. Right. So we'd uh, Tim had been. They're up cooking and uh, there's a, the local pub just when we walked and met and uh, obviously after a busy day, we were getting on the beers and all the lads were having a, we were having a great time. And we were sort of last man standing and this, I don't know how it all came about, but it was who can do the best mangina impression. <laughs> Tim says, go on, Steve, you know, me and you mangina impression. And we'll see who's just got the best, who can do the best. So I'm looking at him going, oh, you've you been serious? He said, come on, mate. The lads are here, a bit of fun. Let's, you know. So, of course, I've um, unbuckled me, top of me breeks and took the old lad away. And uh, he's doing his. He says, three, two, one, Steve. I went, I don't. Three, two, one. And of course, I drop me drawers, look up, and he hasn't done it. 
it's <laughs> <laughs> just, just me stood in the middle of the pub with my breeks down around my ankles. <laughs> one one side of me is doing a fruit bowl and the other one is doing a, doing a, a mangina. <laughs> oh, my so, so that was a, that was my last encounters of Tim. <laughs> uh, that's that's yeah, very amazing. yeah i've i don't think many of my tim short stories are even possible to share on this podcast no. going out as explicit no. um, i'll save them for another time when we're in the pub yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, how long have you had your bottle of something else chris well i drunk half of it first time round. i'm about to do the next half good and so you're going to be useful at the at the gwct quiz as well then yeah, the thing is, uh, all GWCT events are always like for us. They're always in London, like they're the sort of ones that we go to in town. They've do, they're doing one in our local hockey club, which is about half a mile over, through the wood, which is just weird. Like I'm not expecting them to come down this neck of the wood, so I'm just going to walk through the wood to the hockey club, and I'm I'm all good. So yeah, prepping oh, for the nice. quiz. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm, it'll be a rare one, but I'm going to be not the most pissed at the end of the recording. So that's good. <laughs> Right. Steve, what we do next is we like to turn to our post bag. Uh, We ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and queries and questions for a section that we call Whose Bird Is It Anyway? Uh, And this episode submission comes from somebody who sent in their query to pod at gunsonpegs.com with one of those sort of foxy, potentially syndicate closing (laughs) dilemmas. Uh, I've decided to call them Friedrich. And Friedrich says, Dear George and Chris, I'm a regular gun on a small syndicate shoot in Cambridgeshire. I feel this syndicate represents the very best of what shooting has to offer. It's affordable, friendly and sustainable. It's a melting pot of characters from all socioeconomic backgrounds, from CEOs to farmers to gardeners and all ages and genders. The guns and beaters lunch together as one. In my view, it's a very sustainable shoot. There's a strict limit on the bag size, 30 birds per day for eight days with 250 birds released. All shot birds enter the food chain and everybody mucks in to keep it as a team. Those who can't pay more for their peg. When it comes to peg allocation, it's usually very democratic with guns taking it in turns to captain the day and assign peg placements on each drive. Various factors are taken into account such as the physical mobility of each individual and how many birds people have had a chance at that day. There is, however, one exception to this rule. On one of our drives, there's a long central field which the guns surround in the shape of a U. The beaters drive the birds through the field and they sometimes rise out of the crop to the left and right, but generally tend to stay down until the last minute. At the bottom edge of the field, a hedge runs off to the side. The birds tend to flush vertically, see the hedge, turn and follow it. Indisputably, the best peg is 50 yards down this hedge line as your silhouette is obscured and the birds are blistering. I would argue it's the best peg on the whole shoot, not that I've ever shot it. That's because a chap called Harry always stands on that peg. I've been part of the syndicate for over five years and have never seen anyone else get a chance to shoot it. The most peculiar thing is I've never heard it being mentioned, even for peg placement. It just seems to happen. I don't want to disrupt an otherwise excellent syndicate with whinging, but I'd also love for others to enjoy what appears to be a golden peg. How can I gently open up this otherwise unspoken topic for debate? Should I shut up and enjoy what I have or make a stand for what is honourable, true and fair? Well, Friedrich, you have done exactly the right thing and air it anonymously in quite a public way. Um, 
What a bizarre scenario. So so one guy, they're in a normal syndicate, and one guy always has the best peg of the shoot every time. Yeah, that's the that's the long and short of it. Right. Steve, what are you gonna do in this scenario if you're one of the other guns? I'd probably have a word with him and just say, Would you like to share that peg? <laughs> <laughs> Or I'd say, would you like to share that peg? Maybe, Harry, you could go as a back gun and Chris could go in front of you. So he still has the same advantage. (laughs) What I'd love to know is whether this happens just because Harry's a bit kind of, you know, he's hanging at the back all the time and just happens to always be the last one placed on their peg. Or if he's kind of being clever about sort of maneuvering himself into the eye line of the shoot captain on the day so that as they get to peg four it's like oh harry you can go there or if there's some then i feel like maybe there's some sort of some history from back in the day that it was just always it was decided like there was a bet or something that he won and uh and and therefore he's always on on that peg behind this story is one of the best stories in shooting. That's what I'm going to guess. <laughs> there is <laughs> there is a reason. I'd go, I think what they should do is, if they do six days or eight days here, whatever they said they did, take it in turns who should be shoot captain on each day. Yeah. So shoot captain could be Harry one day. So he obviously if he wants to manoeuvre his way towards the best position, he can. But the following week, it would be another person's. Ooh, that would yes, resolve it. I like that. It becomes the captain's peg. Yes. Yeah. The reward a, for taking on the, the taking on the, the the duties on that morning. That's very professional, very diplomatic. I like it. It's a very good suggestion. I think, I think knowing my luck, though, I'd probably end up at the other end, even though I was trying to get there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. A placing of pegs rather than doing a draw at the beginning of the day. We shot on that day in in Herefordshire, didn't we, Chris? Where we were placed. And it, I think it worked, but I think you've got to be pretty hot on, you know, where the shooting's been and, and that kind of thing to, to to make it work. And of course, none of us were that bothered one way or the other, but... You can't place if you're shooting. You have to be watching the line, don't you? Because mm. otherwise you get it wrong. Do, I mean, the, the person who's had a drink just feels that maybe... Friedrich slept with Harry's wife and this is the only way uh, or Harry slept you know, <laughs> this is the only way he's like look mate I'm really sorry but you can have that take every time <laughs> um, I don't know it's very odd isn't it he, do you reckon he just pays more secretly there's no way if that is the best peg of the shoot every time that you're getting away with it for that long like surely it's just that Friedrich doesn't realize that there's that other members of the syndicate know the true story and he's just not privy to that just yet. Mm. You'd just think after five years it had come out though. Yeah. But you know what? Even even doing a gun, you know, shooting at home here, I, there was a whole season where we have a drive where three guns are on the right-hand side of a hedge and, and the rest of the line are on the left-hand side. And for for five days here, it just so happened that I was on the right-hand side of the hedge every single day. I never once stood on the left-hand side of the peg, uh, side of the hedge. And the the weird thing was is that I hadn't even drawn the same numbers each time. It's just yeah. that we did the drives in a different order, and I, so I ended up on that side of the hedge. And I, and it, you know those things can happen even when you're drawing pegs and you're shooting at the same yeah. place regularly. But if this happens to this guy five years in a row every day, he should be buying a lot of lottery tickets because <laughs> that that's just bizarre. <laughs> Um, I think the advice Steve has given is the best advice that we are going to possibly find. 
I do think that also this needs to be aired in public as the reason for presenting that solution to the problem. Because uh, then maybe the true story might come out amongst the syndicate members on a yeah. day, and that would make that day even better. And presumably there is an annual AGM, and he could just suggest that they draw pegs from now on. Yeah. Or maybe a ch- part of the charm is that everybody takes it in turn to do the to do the placing. Whatever happens, uh, my advice is please do something and then message us with what happened when this guy realised he wasn't on that peg, please. Or if the true story came out. Something's got to be done. He, he, so he's obviously been fretting for a while and he's decided to message in anonymously. He said small syndicate shoot in Cambridgeshire, said exactly how many birds they put down. I mean, we're narrowing it down quite heavily. <laughs> and the bloke's called Harry, yeah. <laughs> oh, is he actually, you didn't even change his no, name? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people now that know exactly who this bloke is. Cool. <laughs> Steve, did you ever have, in your professional career, did you have people who were fed up about where they where they ended up in the line ever or think you were you know driving the birds over the other end deliberately or anything like that yeah I mean I did a lot of shooting so you always had people say I had this ability to pick certain people in a in an area and the put the grouse there away and it's look I think if you've got a certain person that's took the day and he's bringing all the guests and he's been out of it all day and you have an ability to go to a certain drive and you know that his peg number six is the best book then why not take him there and give if he's been out of it take him there and go you know he's kind enough to bring everybody um he didn't draw particularly well yeah so you can't yeah i would always try and look after everybody but to be honest with grouse if they decide they're going to go to you know to a certain way they're going to go but they do favor not just one but as such not on the ground that i worked on you know there'd be three or four butts and probably two out of them four would be better than you know you could build round two butts if you like so yeah some might be four and you know three and five would be good but four was the pound seat but that's because the contours and different things but i get Exactly the reason with old Harry, whatever his name was, he's he's stood by the hedge. That's where I'd go. <laughs> yeah, on a, on a low ground partridge shoot, especially flat ground in Cambridgeshire, just get on the hedge every time. That's yep. always the winner. Doesn't matter what peg number it is, just get on the hedge. The thing that amazes me about grouse every time is you you see beaters like I don't know two miles away, a mile away, uh, on the top of like literally on the top, like a little speck, and then a pack of grouse will still just come straight through the line. Yeah, and they're that far away. I mean, you imagine flushing pheasants from a mile out and hoping they go over the guns. It's just not happening, is it? Yeah. Uh, and I, I just find it amazing. Obviously, they're following the contours. You know what's going to happen. But you can't move the butts or anything. You know, they're there for good. I used to, when I set off in this world as a grouse keeper, there was a drive in the Peak District and it was a big drive. And we used to all line up on the Penn Armway and I used to have a whistle. We used to start the drive with a whistle. And I used to love blowing the whistle and waiting for a few minutes and then you'd hear bang 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 really it, yeah it's so just the sound of the whistle was enough to get the yeah bit. you know you're getting into the end of september into october the you know the grouse sort of move on they knew that we were setting off you blow the whistle and you just wait it sent a long time but it's probably a few minutes and you could just hear in the faint distance and the drive would probably take 50 minutes to come in so you can imagine how far out you were I, it just it's undescribable. The last drive on Monday, 
the birds were doing that the moment they left off. So early November, I can imagine incredibly jumpy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and they were doing that, but they didn't come through in packs on this particular drive. I mean, still packs, but like small packs. And it just kept on coming. It's good, a good 45 minutes of continuous seeing grouse through the line. It's unlike anything else. I feel like you're trying to rub it in now. Let's move I just, on. I honestly, on cloud nine after it, it was just so good. Good. We give them some good feedback for this chat then. Yeah, I think so. This is definitely another one where we need them to message in again. Yes. Cool. Right. We've got another one. And we thought Steve would be really well placed to help with this one. Comes from someone that I have actually named for the first time. No real reason for this one. Randy Michaels the third. Uh, any guesses where he's from? <laughs> um, I recently found your podcast and I'm hooked. I'm an American with a passion for British shooting. We have a few options for British style shooting here in America, but my choice features a British shoot captain and a British chef. I'm convinced it's close by American standards to an authentic British experience. However, my issue is that with with the pre-shoot briefing, I found that after breakfast, the guns want to take to the pegs and begin shooting. Of course, the captain must give a safety talk, but he then waders into a discussion of the various shooting methods and so on. Sometimes he gives a demonstration of each method. He always gives his recommended method and the benefits of it. In my opinion, it's not practical for the guns to change their shooting method just minutes before the shoot and without any practice. Before the pegs can be drawn, the guns start to get up to use the restroom or to change their boots. The captain then needs to herd everyone back together to draw pegs. It can be chaotic. My question is, how long should the pre-shoot briefing take and what should be covered? Um, Methods. I'm slightly lost on methods. Is oh, he you're, you're, you're telling people how to shoot. Yeah, he's going. You well, you could use the swing through method. You could use the, um, you know, whatever the the one is where you're always in front. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now. You know, all these different techniques. I mean, that's really brave. The morning of a shoot, being like, right, guys, here's how you do it. I think, I think it's, it's a bit too late for that, isn't it? Exactly. You're going live. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, pre-shoot briefings you've definitely given a few of these haven't I've you Steve? definitely done those <laughs> <laughs> how many do you reckon oh crikey um, thousands so is it like pushing play in your head yeah but uh, it, it, the, I think when it you know I always used to put a time on it and it was 9.15 safety briefing you know suited and booted before then as soon as I'd finished the safety briefing it was wagons roll and I'd go to my vehicle and I'd set off, you know, and people that, you know, we used to be always be the, not always, but repeat custom. They'd always go after safety briefing, we're out of here. So that was one of the main things. I think with safety briefing is that, especially with grouse is make it short and sweet, but to the point. And quite often when you're grouse shooting, there's all you'll be double guns. So your loaders are always, you know they they do this day in day out which mm. i think is paramount really it's important that you have especially you haven't done a lot of grouse shooting to have somebody that has that experience with the safety pegs uh the flank is moving or not hearing the horn which happens and things you know so yeah it was the same drill nine fifteen, done by nine o'clock and with wagons roll and then quite often somebody that you knew that was a, hadn't been before a little bit unsure you'd put your best loader with them and you know you don't want to sort of belittle them by saying oh you know he's not been before or she's not been before you know just have a little chat with them on one-to-one I never had any problems it was it was but 
you can go to some and you need a, a cup of tea and a, a bacon sandwich before they're finished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's a real problem because if they do actually have one or two important points, they're lost. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've said on this podcast before that, that certainly on, on lowland shoots, I, it can sometimes feel a bit like the, the safety briefing when you get on the plane. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know where the exits are. Come on, let's get going. I'm, yeah. I always make a point of making sure that I'm listening because you never quite know what the, the local rules for what a better term might be. The guys that appear every week on, the, like, if it's a syndicate shoot, they should just change up. Like, today we're numbering from the right, not the left, and we're going up three and whatever. And you can find out who's listening quite quickly. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that goes back to changing your, your head of uh, each shoot day. Because yes, obviously, exactly. each um, shoot manager of the day would say something different. So that would make things better. It's a funny one. Like, low, low ground shoots, the, the briefing, I don't know, what are you looking for? Etiquette is probably the biggest thing safety's the safety is the same thing everywhere isn't it like clear sky behind the birds no shoot what gives you pleasure that sort of thing yeah Yeah. shoot you shoot yeah exactly but be safe but then there's there's a few other little bits in that briefing that you want to be listening out for like things like no pigeons before the first bird some shoots are like crack on with the pigeons don't care others are like absolutely no way wait for so yeah all the partridges type thing well i think yeah. the big ones woodcock which is probably yeah. got the biggest variation yeah, ground true. game you know yeah. some some you know you'll go some places and they say you know if you see a fox and you don't shoot it i'm gonna have serious words with you at the end of the day others will say if you see a fox on absolutely no account to you to shoot it so you know you've, you do have to be listening I think it's an interesting one that I agree with you. Foxes used to feature regularly, like many years ago. I feel like in recent years, I've not heard anyone say that ground games acceptable on a shoot day, just for the fear of someone getting it wrong. But it might just be where I've been visiting or whatever. But I, yeah, it feels like people are more safety conscious of the, the, the chances of that going wrong than they might have been in the past. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's definitely rarer to be told that ground game is on the menu. Yeah. So the short answer is it shouldn't be, I don't think the safety briefing should be more than about five minutes, should it? You know, there's a bit, a few other bits in there as well, you know, welcome and lovely to have you all here and what a wonderful slash terrible day for it. Um, all that sort of stuff. But five minutes is plenty. Yeah. So this, this, this particular guy's shoot with the, the captain going into the various safety, uh, shooting methods, he's definitely gone off topic there. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <true>. <laughs> <laughs> someone needs to put him up just send him this this pod maybe that would sort that one <laughs> perhaps we should record a uh a safety briefing we'll get steve to record us a safety briefing to yeah. send just play, play <laughs> then you can just push play on phone. your phone and walk away <laughs> well there's a couple of places now you watch the you just go in the gun room and watch the tv oh no like yeah. like when you go like a skydive or something and yeah. you've got a video from yeah. 1986 of yeah. like how it should be done yeah <laughs> But, but sometimes we, um, if it was a let day, we'd have a somebody that was hosting for the days. And I used to always say, all right, you do it today. Um, and they'd catch them out a little bit and put them on the spot. So that was always a bit of fun as well. And then they'd, you know, because on grouse, you know, your safety pegs, one and two flankers and shot, cat, shot cartridges, first horn, second horn, all these things. There's quite a lot to take on. So it's always mm. good that somebody turns up, that brings a shooting party that, and then put them on the spot, how to dismount and remount, shooting behind and these things. So the grouse one is is quite in-depth. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, Maybe each safety briefing should start with, right, guys, really need to listen today because we're doing something hugely different to what we normally do. 
and then do your briefing and then someone will go what's different you go oh nothing i just want to listen (laughs) (laughs) yes psychology good well that was very good hopefully randy michaels doesn't get taught how to shoot anymore that's my, (laughs) my hope there yes okay so to finish off the correspondence bit um we've got well it's not really a query I don't really know what it is. A, a suggestion, possibly. Um, it comes from someone that I've decided to call Paris. And Paris says, I've had a brilliant idea to save shooting forevermore. It's a radical idea, but please hear me out. For context, I grew up in a small village in the middle of nowhere, whereas my partner grew up on the urban fringes of London. Therefore, it's not surprising that because of our differing backgrounds, she had never been on a game shoot before meeting me as I don't think Heathrow Airport would appreciate the release of pheasants on the edge of the runway. Since being together, we've attended a few shoots and eaten lots of game, which she wouldn't have experienced otherwise. I'm sure this has meant I've spread the word of what we do to someone who doesn't have an opinion on the subject, and as such have widened our support for shooting. Further to this, any of her family and friends I can persuade to the idea of shooting and everything it brings to the environment and rural communities will help the cause. So my proposition is as follows. We should widen our gene pool. Rather than dating fellow country folk who understand the benefits of shooting, hunting and fishing, we should be radical and invade the towns and cities looking for a mate. (laughs) Sow your seed far and wide. If you come across a fellow countryside person, do not entertain them as a potential life partner. Swipe left and get rid of them. They're already on the right side of shooting. The only issue I can see is exactly how we navigate our red diesel TD5s into the middle of the ULES cities and towns. <laughs> he's, de- he's definitely had a drink before this one, hasn't he? <laughs> well, I do. What, what, they, what, what, what Paris has said, it, I do think is quite true. I'm not sure her solution's going to, is quite right, but there is a, a divide between where we are and inner cities for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and and they're right about the the sort of undecided middle as well, which is that most people don't really care one way or the other until you ask them, and if you can get them on board before they've had an opinion formed for them by the people who shall remain unnamed, then that's a good thing. This is qu- this is quite a radical approach to it. <laughs> that is a good idea, but marrying them is quite serious. <laughs> well, except well, I think I probably did. Well, I did too. So, <laughs> well, you you were forward thinking. Yeah, exactly. No, we. we yeah, who knows that Paris isn't maybe me or George? But... Was that part of your calculation, Chris? When uh, you what? when you so decided I, to pop the question? I'm so committed to the future of shooting that I must bring one other person into the circle. <laughs> um, funny enough, George didn't come into it. Actually, it's probably the opposite. I talk about shooting far too much. And when I met Flo, not talking about shooting was actually really quite nice. I wonder whether that ever came into it. Just, we know, mm. on first early dates and stuff. Imagine if, if, if I don't know, for me, on an early date back then, if, if all that person wanted to do was talk about shooting, I probably would have been like, wow, this is too much. I'm going to be like 24-7 the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. It could have worked the other way. I think, I think it's how it's presented, isn't it? The first encounter of a day shooting, yeah, if it was on um, Harry's syndicate, little small syndicate of 30 birds and meeting at the pub and having a bacon sandwich and and that sort of day. I think who's not to like that? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then coming to a Steve Colmer 
let day and I've got to do this and I've got to hit that and I've got to go the other. She hasn't got time to look, blink or, you know, it's game on. So there is a, a big difference, I think. I think it's her first experience of it yeah. is whether it's make or break. I wish I'd been more organised, actually, because I just remembered that we do ask in the census, you know, how people found their route into shooting who it was who introduced them and i'm convinced that a significant proportion is it is is through you know obviously the 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 majority is like my dad or my granddad or whatever but (laughs) like there's definitely a lot of people who are introduced to shooting because their other half is into it and they kind of get dragged along are you proposing an additional question to the census next year which is did your other half shoot before you met them (laughs) it's quite in-depth isn't it yeah, I think it's got to be two questions with logic, Chris, if we want to get into the weeds of it. So, um okay, fine, we'll move on. <laughs> but good, I like the suggestion. Thank you very much for it. It's good. And uh, anybody who decides to take up the advice, definitely send us an email, pod at gunsonpegs.com. Uh, I want to know about that. The expanding the gene pool section of the Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting turn of phrase there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, so uh, Friedrich, Randy Michaels III, Paris, and of course now you, Steve, are the newest members of the most noble order of the garters and will very soon be in receipt of a set of the much-coveted, highly exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. <laughs> if you too have got a shooting confession, quandary, or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion to share, or you'd like to tell us about a forgotten drive, or if you've got other suggestions about how people should take their love lives forward, and you'd like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. So you just alluded to it, Steve, uh, the team around you on a shoot day, because you're in quite a serious operation. So is this like, uh, is this a fun atmosphere, the beating team? were they all, Was it all really good bunch? And did they all always come back or is it I think I mean that I think that's probably some of my fondest moments really was the the beaters when I think about it we used to have three minibuses 17 seaters and they used to set off in their in their sort of merry way collecting different people from different parts of Hexhamshire and County Durham and and uh did you did you have like pick did you were you going to collect the same people each time, or did you have like did did it word get round that oh if you want a day's beating you hang around here at this point? Yes, yeah. So the first seventeen on the bus could come; the rest had to get left behind. <laughs> and then and then sometimes there'd be a particular person that wasn't behaving themselves, and the bus driver would be told, "Don't allow Joe Bloggs on tomorrow morning. If he's there, tell him he's not allowed on." Oh really? Yeah, yeah. But it was great. I mean, these guys. Were nice when they set off. I mean, these you know these weren't kids. These some of these were, you know, adults, and um, they just loved the whole, you know. And I used to say to them, right, and give them some authority and some a bit of a bit of responsibility. So you four, you're going to go line up there and bring in that piece. I, you know, you've got this, lads. You know, and you can see their chests getting bigger as they sort of set off on their way mm. into the deepest depths of a grouse moor. But I think one of the best ones was I had a close f- friend. He used to come flanking every day. And uh, he was traveling up from Penzance and he cut across onto the A1. I'm not sure whereabouts on the A1, pulled up for fuel. And he... um as he's coming out the service station, there's this chap on the side of the road with his thumb out. And of course, Roy being Roy, single bloke, you know, 
thought, well, see where he wants to go. So he pulls up and he says to this chap, you know, where do you want to go? He says, well, north. So he <laughs> jumps in his car and off they go up the A1. So as they're traveling up the A1 and getting closer towards Durham, Roy's going, you know, what do you fancy doing? And what are you going? His bloke says, well, I'm, you know, I'm from Glasgow. He said, I'm just trying to, Presswick, sorry, I'm trying to get my way back up there. And, well, if you like, I'll ring my mate, Steve. You can come to work with me tomorrow, flanking. And I said, so he obviously then rings me, Roy. Steve, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, do you need any flankers? I was like, well, yeah, you come in, Roy, yeah. Um, my mate, you know, he wants to... <laughs> He wants to come. So I says, right out. So anyhow, Roy turns up and yeah, Roy was a sort of one of them people that you'd look at twice anyhow when you saw him. <laughs> right. But when this chap gets out of this vehicle, he's been, you know, this is the, the, the truth. He'd been homeless and was still homeless. And Roy turned up with this guy and you, you know, I was like, who, what, where? <laughs> and he's walking up the up the up towards the gun room and he says, I'll oh, meet my mate Jonathan, I think his name was, or something like that. And I was like, look, and I'm like, what am I gonna do with this man? You know, I've, I've, got, I've got to hide him. What am I gonna do with him? I mean, he just he needed a sorting out, he wanted feeding, you know. And I said to Roy, you know, and of course all the lads turn up, who's that, Steve? Who's that? I said, Roy has picked him up. You know, I asked Roy, Roy said I was coming up, tells me the story. So the lads say, right. So they called him A1 Jockey, right? <laughs> so A1 Jockey, he was never been on a grouse more, had no ideas about anything at all to do with shooting. And he was thrown in the deep end as Steve's next flanker. So I'm setting off down the flank and I can see everybody staring at me going, who's he? What's <laughs> he? <laughs> But anyhow, A1 Jockey could not walk. You know, he was the poor lad. He got trainers on. I was, and all these, you know, it was a proper throw me in the deep end, Roy. So through the day, we had to give him less jobs because he couldn't, the old boy couldn't, you know, he just wasn't ready for this. But when I dropped him off first flank, he didn't know what flanking was. So, of course, the first gun was saying, well, if your flanker was waving his flag, you know, them few grouse might have come my way. And I'm like, well, I couldn't really say to the gun, well, the, the first flanker doesn't know what flanking is. So he'd say, why have you got him? But after the sort of the end of the day, there was just something about A1 jockey that just, you know, through the day, I was like, Roy, do not bring this man again. I didn't say that to him, but that was my feelings, right? But when I was walking and talking to this guy, you could see that there was some, something, there was a bit of, there's a background to this that he didn't deserve me telling him that. Anyhow, I said to the lads in the kitchen, you know, mate, can you tomorrow bring us a pat lunch for these, but they're for A1 jockey. I got him some boots and a pair of waterproof trousers. And anyhow, all of a sudden, A1 jockey every day got stronger and stronger, you know, picked the grouse up, made sure they were where they want to be and picked the cartridges up and morning and, you know, started to be part of the team. And I can remember at the time my boss saying, uh, Steve, who's this guy? Who's he? I said, well, you know, Roy, yeah. And I told him the story, A1 Jockey. He said, that's great. I was like, yeah, I know. It is a great story. I said, but to start with, what, what am I going to do with him? After about three weeks to a month, A1 Jockey was part of the team. 
everybody thought the world of him, you know, the girls brought him a bit of cake and gave him a flask and he was all set up, you know, to be the next best flanker and he had a heart as big as a bucket. But, but there was a, he had a, some background issues with various different things which we were helping him with. Anyway, A1 jockey turned up six days a week, every day, mega. Anyhow, one Monday morning comes around and Roy turns up. I said, where's A1 jockey? You know, he had his routine. Um, he's disappeared, Steve. So what do you mean he's disappeared? He said, he's gone. I said, gone? I said, we got plans for, for him. I thought, well, tomorrow will be here. So next day comes around. I said, Roy, where's A1? Steve, I've got to show you this. Anyhow, A1 had, he'd, um, he'd got a cereal box and wrote on the back of the cereal box, he'd cut it up and wrote me a letter saying, thank you very much to you and everybody. He said, I've, I hadn't been, I've never been so happy and never felt so good. But he was scared it was going to end and disappeared. Goodness me. So if anybody knows where A1 Jockey is, when they listen to this podcast, we would like to find out what happened to A1. And since then, I've always looked at what a difference that made to him. You know, he got back on his feet. You know, we don't need to be scholars, but we, you know, I'm thick, but I'm not stupid. And I think there's a place for these guys, all the beaters, they've all got different things going on. But, you know, when you give a bit of responsibility and show them the community that we're all in, and why we do it, they really do sort of, they, it brings the best out of them. And, you know, they all, morning gaffer, what gaffer, where are we going now? And they'd even look at the wind direction in the morning. I bet we're going to do this today and that, and we'll take it onto there, Steve. You know, and these are lads that would, all their days would probably be, you know, the head teacher's worst nightmare. But because they were fit, you know, out there making it happen and, you know, we treated them. We treated them right. You know, if they needed to kick up the ass, we kick them up the ass. But when they did well, we tell them. And a one a one jockey was probably one of my prouder moments when watching this. Honestly, if you can picture a, a homeless, I don't know how many years he'd been on the streets, but a bloody long time. And we got we got him smartened up, and every single member. You know, we'd employ up to eighty people a day. And more at times, and every single person looked out for A one, and um, and each other. So I think the shooting world, you know, it's not what you've got or what you want to have. It's you know, it's more a case of you know, getting on with it, which was it's good. An absolutely amazing story, and I think you know we often talk about how important shooting is for communities and yeah. and and the bonds that it forges. But I mean that underlines that in a way that's more than just you know people getting together for a drink in the pub afterwards you know that yeah. is the real power of community and you know hats off to you guys for because you know like you said you had you took a, a pretty big risk there but i think a lot of it was a little bit of luck and timing you know genuinely when a1 jockey came up that drive i was shaking my head going i don't need this in my life right now so it was a massive learning curve for me you know what i mean I was sort of like, I'm going shooting. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. And everything's more important than, than, or you think things are more important. But actually, A1 jockey, whenever anybody turns up now, I'm like, this could be A1, you know? Yeah. 
It's so sad, but so amazing at the same time that you, the, the the experience that he had, you had, but so sad that he felt the need to then but, disappear. But there I wasn't mean, anybody, honestly, there wasn't anybody in that in the villages because everybody knew him. You know what I mean? Everybody knew him. There wasn't anybody that didn't look out for him. And I think he genuinely did feel safe, you know, but just he obviously has that whatever it is in his life and just moved on again. But I mean, to go from, you know, it sounds like he was in a, a pretty bad way when he arrived. And, um, you know, I was going to say a lot of people listening to this will have done a bit of beating, you know, as part of their shooting apprenticeship, so to speak. And, you know, maybe they've got to walk one stand, one shoot or something like that in uh, in their syndicate. Beating on a grouse moor is not for the faint hearted. <laughs> it's else. not it's not like, you know, tapping through a bit of maze. No, <laughs> no. What, what what mileage is an average grouse beater doing on a day? God, I mean, must be get. I mean, getting up towards ten miles, fifteen miles, won't they? Through heather. Yeah. What you've got to do if you want to start grouse more, this is the best bit of advice I can give you. If you two lads want to start grouse beating, <laughs> <laughs> my advice to you is is to start on the twelfth of August, right? Because everybody is in the same shape. It's like pre-season, isn't it? Yeah. Right. If you decide in September, yeah, I'll have a go at that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you ain't going to last two minutes because when them lads, when they honestly, when them drives come in, when them lads have been doing it day in, day out, and, and ladies, and by the way, girls are much better at driving grouse than lads. Right. Because <laughs> they do, they, they, they're like Ron Seal. They do what it says on the tin. Lads, every now and then, think they can reinvent the next grouse drive. But honestly, when them drives come in, the speed they come in at, you drop into there, and you it you honestly you're dropping on the first drive and go. You know what, Steve's right. I'm not doing this ever again. And if I am <laughs> going to do it again, I'm going to start on the twelfth of August. <laughs> you, you, you almost. It sounds like you almost have like training camps pre-season for warm-up for the beaters. <laughs> but you, you just, yeah, they, oh, they just, they are the, they're the makers of it, aren't they? Without them, you can't do it. And yeah, they're just, they're just mega. I mean, look, I used to have my run-ins with them, but yeah, they were good as gold. So you, you, this is a pretty major, I mean, three moors, right? Over a huge amount of ground. Mm. And you're head keeper of that. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And you're, you're, the influence that those moors are having in that area is, I mean, significant, right? Yeah, I mean, but delegation's everything, isn't it? You know, you can't, let's not kid myself or kid anybody. I wasn't the only person there. You know, I had some very strong lads that worked for me, mm. you know, and team, a team around you, which makes it easier, delegation and... That's what makes it work. And Did you find your role over that period of time, I'm sure it wasn't always the same, but I mean, in terms of the sort of public nature of the importance of like a head keeper or that more, did you find your role change somewhat? We involved in stuff towards the end that you just wouldn't have thought of being involved in at the start. No, like, I've never been involved in anything at all apart from my day-to-day -day job. Right. So I've never been involved, nothing. All I did was that job, nothing else. I don't, I was never involved. So, you know, part of my, where I am now is, um, I want to give back 
some of the good times that I've had. I'll give it all back um, to help and perhaps find a way to, for, you know, sustainability is the word. And I think with the things that, you know, I've, I'm 51 and I have my grandfather's keeper for me. So I can go back as far as you need to go really in today's world. And I think some of the things that I've learned can only would like to think can help make the difference moving forward. Because if we, if we you know, we, we've, we've got to get it right. And I think we can do it. But I mean, there, there can't be that many grouse keepers in the country. I mean, I don't know how many there would be, but you had, I think Chris said 15 guys under you. Yeah. Um, and so a, a big part of that giving back is you will have been mentoring and coaching and, and helping these lads to improve and, and passing on a lot of your knowledge over that period. Right. So, you know, that even when you were doing it, you were giving back in that sense. Yeah. I think I wouldn't say I didn't stand there training lads. I think they just pick up on it, you know, yeah, mm. just, Learn you know, on the job. I never had when lads used to come to work on the estate, they knew that it's the right way or the highway. You know, I know it sounds a bit bad that, but you know, my attention to detail has got to be there. And if you get the detail right, the rest of it's easy. So, so you you, re, you finished uh, at Allen Heads yeah. in 2020. What are you up to now? Are you? I'm just drifting along a bit, really. So what would you like to, I mean, it sounds, it's that, I mean, knowledge like you've got has got to be passed yeah. on to as many different places as possible, really. Yeah, I mean, I think that in today's world, everybody's got a pretty switched on to how to produce grouse. So that's not, it's how to sustain where we are moving forward is going to be the, the bit we need to work on. So yeah, I'm involved in some management on different places got time for more though do i um i just want to help so as you know tarquin's a very good friend of mine oh did i say that live yeah we can <laughs> cut it though we can cut it or i'll bleep it this that, oh my that's the second time this has happened to me i actually said it once i like tarquin <laughs> and then i've just said it again anyhow I'll have to get he's, over he's it. A, he's a previous podcast guest. If this is the first one you're listening to, wind back and you can hear him. I know, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I've heard him lots over the the last few decades. Um, but anyhow, um, yeah, so he invited me to get involved in some of the more the matters things. And because I've not been involved in it all, I've been sort of stuck in my little world as a, a, as a grouse moor keeper. And then since stepping away from that, I have been involved in discussions with lots of different people. And the picture that I pick up on is, is nobody's anti-shooting, they're anti-industry. So, mm. and, I, and I think that moving forward, I'd like to learn a bit more about the anti-industry. So we can look into, look at that more. And the more the matters thing has, you know, has, I met Chris there. I met lots. I don't know how many guests he's had at these things, but lots. Um, and I, uh, I get to talk to these people that I thought I'd never ever talk to. And there's mm -hmm. people there that are pretty smart guys and girls that have never been on a grass war. 
And I'm like, wow, I cannot believe this, these people ha- haven't been involved in a day-to-day of an upland because they do play a massive part in it. So I've had a big wakey-wakey, really, and I do feel that I've got to help. And whatever I can to do to help, then I will. Chris, I think maybe you should just, for people who haven't heard us talk about Moreland Matters before, just give a quick mm. overview of about what those events are. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't able to go this year, but I think I'll... Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, I know I've, I'm arranging it at the moment. You'll you'll be on one next year. They are absolutely mega. So basically, Tarquin, uh, along with some other people, pulled together these events and go up to uh, some Moreland in springtime. Uh, and you've got, obviously, hatching going on everywhere. Uh, and you'll get out early in the morning to see what goes on, to see the huge number of uh, ground-nesting birds uh, in on that moor and just the wildlife absolutely teeming in a way that you just don't see it if you're up there during shooting time. Um, and I hadn't had the fortunate um, luck to to be on a moor during that time, and it blew me away. And obviously, you see people like Steve wandering around, you know, spotting grouse chicks, uh, just understanding exactly what's going on, seeing what the other birds are doing and where issues might be and so on. And it's just it's fascinating. And then what happens after that is... The group, which is quite a diverse group, gets together to have really interesting discussion to share their thoughts on some of the issues facing the uplands or countryside management in general. I was going to um, say, I think one of the things that, that's interested me most about the the project is that it's not just taking the usual suspects, right? It's not just, you know, the editor of the absolutely. field and the guy who runs guns on pegs and what have you. There's people who are potentially not on side with the whole concept of of shooting and there's an opportunity to do a bit of outreach and education and to form Mm. opinion or shape it exactly and it's kind of like some of the content we're seeing on scribehound with the differing approaches to certain issues that are going on um it's fascinating and i think the prerequisite to turn up to one of these events is you've got to be passionate about something uh, and you you come at it from your angle, ideally with some knowledge, and you'll get different walks of life there. Going, do you know what? As lovely as that sounds, and you can think you've got the best idea ever. As lovely as that sounds, it just doesn't work in my world. And what we find is this, and we come up against these issues. And then you'll get someone else going, "That's really interesting. We have that one, but we also see that from what he's saying." And it it just I we we went away with a bunch of really good ideas, and I actually felt I felt a lot closer to those that probably on the at initial glance would oppose everything that I love because I felt there was a lot more common ground than what gets portrayed in the media yes well I mean you know I'm a cynical I'm a cynical journalist and I know that um you know the the media and you know none of them have an interest in people uh finding common ground that's not that's not (laughs) good telly um it's not it's not doesn't sell newspapers you know everyone gets along just fine isn't a headline that uh, that sells newspapers so you know what they're looking for is you know you think grouse shooting's great you think grouse shooting's terrible and fight that's what makes a great five minute segment on good morning britain or whatever uh, is two people yelling at each other rather than having sensible uh, informed and civilized debate with each other mm. i just when I, the people that i met they were very very uh, it was great genuinely open my eyes knowing that there is a way forward and these people you know both ways I'm not saying they but they didn't understand 
where we were coming from and quite frankly we didn't understand what they what they where they were coming from so having these meetings and listening um you know and i'm i'll be a hypocrite you know when i was grouse keeping it was that's what i do and that's what i'm i'm that's where i'm going so i think that listening and and working it out is probably is going to be good for the future and the more that matters things definitely brings them together did you take a lot of pride from the knock-on effects of good grouse keepering on biodiversity? I think so. Years ago, there was, a, the, and it was the late Mr. Stone always used to say, "Good grouse keepering, you got conservation for free." And I think that in today's world, we're all looking at this differently. And there, and I think it's good conservation work. We get grouse shooting free. This is another topic that we've discussed on the podcast before. I think it was with Dylan Williams. Yeah. Um, um, and, and he's big on the idea of effectively rebranding gamekeepers as conservation managers or uh, wildlife marshals. Rangers. I can't remember what rangers, something along those lines, and not calling it gamekeeper because there's because uh, it undersells what I think, you, work that you guys so, do. So the point that I'm bringing is, is that when you, if you say grouse more, good grouse more management, you get conservation free. That narrows it down to, so all the people in the room at a Morland Matters meeting narrows it down to two people probably. If you yeah. if you turn it round and good conservation work, and you get grouse shooting free, everybody sat around that table has an influence. Yeah, yeah. And from a public perspective, you're getting the conservation work for free as well because it's privately funded. But look, I'm not saying I know, but what I do think is that I enjoyed talking to these people and I enjoyed listening to them. And the people that I thought would have been anti-shooting at these meetings were definitely not anti-shooting. You know, they were judging a book by its cover. And I think yeah. it's up to us to open the book and show them beyond the cover as, you know, there's lots of things that, you know, I, I've never been involved in anything. This is my first ever public thing I've ever done here now with you guys. <laughs> so I'm not involved in nothing at all. So I mean, it's a really interesting thing about the, I mean, the countryside in general, you know, farming, everything, it, it, we have been encouraged for such a long time to think of it all as being under attack. And uh, I think traditionally as well, the countryside is quite, uh, and people who live there and, and work there have been quite insular, you know, not that interested in having people, um, you know, incomers coming in and, and getting involved or, or being there at all, really. And, you know, there's that cliche of farmers shouting, get off my land at people and, I'm sure mm. there have been times when you've uh, had to turn people around and say the footpath's actually over there, that kind of thing. But I do wonder whether in order to 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 get that social license, we need to be a bit more open as a community and, and say, actually, no, do come and see because we're proud of what we do. And, and it might be that you don't like it, but I suspect that's because you don't understand it. But we can't expect anybody to understand it if we're putting up barriers. Yeah, it's how it's presented and delivered. You know, it's a bit like the safety talk. It needs to be short, sharp and effective, not, 
you know, me talking about grouse for the next three hours because you lads would fall asleep and rather listen to Tarquin. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> We can debate that one another time. Yeah, no, it, it, I, I'm not. I, I, I don't know the answers, but what I do know is there's a lot of good people in the background of our industry that are moving forward. You know, it does feel very positive about you know people coming together, people looking at it in a different light. I do, you know, and I the industry itself. You know, when the people talk about how bad it is. Well, it's never been as good, you know. Yeah. Every grouse moor is producing grouse. You know, we've the the uplands have gone from unfavourable to favourable. You know, from all the hard work from every governing body to the landowners to the keepers. You know, all the restoration work that's taken place. You know, we're doing we're doing bloody well. Um, mm. And uh, you know, farming. You know. I still see farmers smiling and, and enjoying their job, so I'm a, I'm a little bit the opposite. I think we're in a we're in a good place, but what we've got to do is sustain it, and the only way to sustain that is probably by opening the book instead of just letting them see the cover. Yeah. Do you miss it? Do you miss running no. the days? Do you, no. no. <laughs> so you're not tempted to no. to go back into no. gamekeeping. You don't want no. you don't fancy wild no. greys or something no. like that. No. I think no. that. No. I think that's a no joke. That's fairly emphatic. <laughs> I'm involved in a big project at the minute and that, you know, once my brain's set on that, which it is, there's so many people want to have the opportunities that I've had. So I need to be a little bit less selfish and go, I want to do that now. You know, what I want to do is help the people achieve, you know, the goals in which they want to achieve. So I'm a little bit more... Yeah, that's pretty good of you. Well, but you know, it's true, isn't it? I've been there. Isn't anything I haven't achieved within the industry? I've, I've, I've got this badge, and I'd be great. You know, some of the lads that have worked for me, they've gone on to being head keepers on different estates. You know, I just rather right now, my pleasure would be to be involved in helping them and making sure that they go another, you know, into the next two or three decades of, of what we did. I think that's a mega lesson uh, for any keeper in terms of how they think about all of this to sort of think like that. I think that would be incredibly powerful. I didn't so. want to, I'll be honest, when I left, I didn't want to do it ever again. I didn't want to go near it. I'd had enough. But I I was invited to go and look after a chap and he was in a similar sort of situation, an elderly chap. And um, we got up on the fell on early August and I was doing it as a favor for somebody. Anyhow, anyhow, we got in this grouse, but we didn't know each other. We knew each, knew of each other. And you know, he was, a. there's me sort of, I've had enough of this and I don't want to do it. And then he started playing that game and I was like the devil's advocate. I said, here, I'm not having that. We've got this. We've got this. No, no, that's not right. So, but all the things he was moaning about, you know, that's what I've been moaning about. But so we played, we played this ping pong and then, Afterwards, I remember after a couple of uh, a couple of days, he gets in the car and he said to his wife, he said, you know what, we've got this. Steve's told me so many things and what things he thinks about and how we think about it and how we could present this and what we could do next. And uh, yeah, we've got this, you know. And this was a chap who owned a grouse mall, you know. So between us since then, last, last year and this year, we often catch up with each other and 
share our thoughts on what we've seen and what we could do next. And um, yeah, I do. I, I, I think there's a lot of positivity out there. Um, it just need and all the groups are coming together and everybody's spending the time with each other, you know, and the years gone I, by, we, we didn't, did we? We just, what's mine's mine. And I, I love it. That's a lovely way to try and wrap this up because that's positive and yeah, I, yeah. I'm yeah. really 100%. glad to hear it it's hear actually it incredibly you. inspiring to hear you speak Steve it's fantastic yeah, yeah thank I you I agree so Steve the way we finish these pods up is uh with desert island shooting uh the ex- the extinction level asteroid hits tomorrow your affairs are in order loved ones and enemies reconciled dogs fed tomatoes watered your last day begins how My, well it wouldn't be shooting unfortunately but I would probably like May the 27th we'll go for. <laughs> Very specific. I like it. When, where, 27th, no, a bit, bit earlier, sorry, where the hens are just about hatching. So they'll come off the nest quicker. So I like to, my passion or my drug is to f- watch hens go back to a nest and watch and, see how the nests are doing and, and monitor the nests and a hen as she gets closer to hatching which is towards the end of may the main hatches that is she'll come off and feed quicker and you haven't got to wait so long before she goes back to the nest so if you wait if you if if you're looking for nests in the beginning of may you know that she's probably 10 days off or yeah or 14 days off hatching you'll know that uh, she'll feed a bit longer because she's she knows they're not going to hatch when you get to prime time she'll nip off the nest bolt over to her favorite watering hole then bolt over and get as much down her neck as possible and then straight back to the nest so if you time this and i know i keep mentioning this awful man tarquin but i used to say to him tarquin now's the time and it was, you know, it's a bit like a Flash Gordon moment where he jumps in the car and flies as fast as he can to Northumberland to to spend this golden moment of probably forty eight hours of maximum of where the hens just come off, go back, go away, and you can just find so many nests, record so much in that time, it's priceless. And um, I've said to him many a time, Tarquin, now. So that's what I would do. Not not go shooting, but if I could, if that was my last moments, that's what I would do. That's amazing. I must say, to do it with someone like the knowledge of you, I'd sit there in the passenger seat of the car out the window with the binos. That with a beer, we always take a beer <laughs> yeah, with, with us. Beer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> nice cold beer on a, on a May May evening. But the thing is, early morning. No, no, it can be any time. They just come off. It's a bit like fish. They just start feeding. Not that I know much about fishing. Um, but it's, it's just that moment and uh, but you would I'll take you one day I'll take you both and, I'm going to take uh, you up on that I, I'll take you I'll take you wait and I'll get some uh, North 27th North, of May you say I'm going to put it in the diary well, so I'll, I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'll take you and then you'll you will be addicted because you'll be like I'm going to find this one before Steve <laughs> right you know what I mean yeah, the game yeah. and then it'll be yeah George I'm not going to tell you there's one here until I found it so it's very much that. And so the nice thing about it being made is you've got a nice long day. I know. Um, mm. It might be nice and warm. Yeah. Um, and then you can maybe slip into a nice yeah. local pub 
yeah. for something refreshing once so you come down. We'll have a deal. For every, for every nest you find, I buy you a pint. For every nest I find, you buy me two. That sounds like an awful deal. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it sounds like it's worth it, Chris. <laughs> I, I will take him up on it, I suppose, yeah. Well, actually, George, it's you and me. So if we've both got a pair of binos looking in two directions. Yeah. I'm still going to beat you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome, Steve. That's uh, amazing. What a privilege to have you on. Thank yeah, you. Thank you very you. much, guys. Thank you. Well, and I should also say, you know, I've been booking the guests for the last little while, but um, Chris set this one up. So thank you, Chris. Um, uh, I've absolutely loved this. It's been amazing. Yeah, pretty good. Great. Steve, thank you so much. No, um, thank you, guys. Thank you. Right. So as per usual, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or sharing in a forgotten drive or by sending something that we think is funny, funny enough to be read out. Just send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode. But until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.